I would love to hear from you, Dustin, how you would describe the personalities of each of your daughters. Elizabeth is very straightforward. She takes things literally. She's she's fun. She's she likes to have a good time. And Charlotte is a little bit of the opposite. She's she likes to get into some trouble a little bit. She's <laughs> she wants to push the limit. And she's also fun and Charlotte is so sassy. She is. She's she's got definite and independent. Mm-hmm. Where there is research, there is hope. This simple phrase summarizes the years of tests, labs, and advocacy by the parents in our conversation. I'm Seth Carnell and this is the Go Shout Love Podcast. Today, we are in Redding, California, talking with Dustin and Stephanie, the parents to two individually unique but incredibly close sisters who share the same diagnosis of generalized myasthenia gravis and systematic auto-inflammatory disease. It's a combination of rare diseases that has never been seen before. Elizabeth, who is nine years old, and Charlotte, who is six, have a very unique medical journey that we will hear about as Dustin and Stephanie paint a picture of what it was like trying to search for a diagnosis. They also help navigate having children with a rare medical journey that isn't always outwardly visible. So much to cover in this episode, so let's get going. In this conversation is Josh Veach, our executive director of Go Shout Love, and Jessica Santo, our family relations director and talented photographer. And I've picked up on a little dynamic where Elizabeth doesn't seem to mind to step into a little bit of a parental role and say, we should do this instead, or like kind of help offset some of that. Elizabeth is far beyond her years. Yeah. Um, but yes. And Elizabeth is also a rule follower. So if there are a set of rules, <laughs> um, those are the rules and you must abide by them. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel, and tell me if I'm wrong, that maybe Elizabeth is more like dad and Charlotte is more like mom. hundred percent. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were talking that. about that before you came. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I see Elizabeth, a lot of my traits in Elizabeth. Yeah. I love that. Whereas Charlotte, I don't know where she gets her wild side from, but <laughs> what are their favorite things to do? What brings them joy? I know that I saw a bunch of Legos Oh, and some gymnastic equipment in your playroom. So Lego is a big hit. Um, They have Lego date night with dad almost every single night where they have these big, huge Lego sets and they do at least one um, like package of Legos every night. Um, And then the girls and I, we like to craft. And one thing that we do that's a little bit unique is we make these little badge reels for all of Elizabeth and Charlotte's nurses and doctors um, to show how much like we appreciate them caring for our girls. Some families do pizza and coffee and flowers, and we decided to to use our crafts and do something useful. So um, that's a lot of glitter, a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of vacuuming. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, they play basketball. You can go into that, babe. 
Yeah, whenever the weather's nice, we like to get out there and play basketball. It does get pretty hot here, so in the summer, we like to wait until the evening, and we'll we'll get out there and shoot some hoops. And they usually uh, do swimming in the, before like 11 or noon, because... Um, so I've got a gym in the garage and a lot of the a lot of the things I try to make in there also suit the girls so mm-hmm. I can I've got a pair of gymnastics rings in there. I've got a couple ropes in the shop so they can climb the ropes and swing on the ropes. That's really cool. We've learned on this visit that you are a handyman and that you have a talent with that. So it's cool that you can make something like that adaptable for them. And as they progress, too, you can change all of that. That's really neat. I enjoy spending time with them. And, I, you know, they uh, the things that I do for them, it doesn't seem like there's much effort. It, mm. it feels good. That's great. There's He's so humble. Um, there's things that, like, Elizabeth will have to do in PT um, because she has contractures. And... He makes these things. I don't know what they're called. They're like the incline things for the. I've got some wedges. The wedges. And he makes something that is hard for Elizabeth to do. Something that she enjoys doing with her dad. That's neat. Um, And he sees it like it's just part of, you know, our family and what he does. But it's just, I don't know. It feels powerful to me. And it's it's actual therapy while she's it's doing actual it. actual therapy, mm-hmm. yeah. But it doesn't feel like therapy because it's a thing that I'm doing with dad. It's a thing I'm doing with dad. Yeah. Yeah. What and a cool way to... It's beautiful to watch them. Yeah. And then, like, the other things he has in his gym, he, like, whenever they, like, do art together or color, he always puts all their pictures up on his, like, toolboxes and Aww. stuff. It's cute. That's awesome. Well, let's jump into a little bit of their medical journey and kind of how we got into, you said they're six and nine now. They're six and nine. And um, they are, what's interesting about their story is that, that may be different from a lot of kids with rare medical journeys, is that you could see them running through the house and have no idea the complexities that are going on underneath the surface. So tell us a little bit about how your journey into the medical, uh, kind of rare medical journey started um and how we got to where we are today so at first you know we were new parents we'd never had a baby before so it felt like all the things that were happening to us were normal maybe they happened to every family until charlotte was two and like she had this fever that just wouldn't go away of 103 104 for 13 days and we just didn't have any answers nobody could give us a reason other than, you know, it's probably some common thing and she wouldn't talk. She wouldn't move. It was terrifying. And that was the first time we noticed we thought something might really be wrong. And then Elizabeth would go on to develop very similar things. Um, our kids were hospitalized quite a lot and, um, When Charlotte was three, she ended up um, not being able to walk and things got pretty scary. We didn't have a diagnosis, but at that point, doctors were saying there's something wrong and, you know, we need to take a deeper look. 
Um, when you say she wasn't able to walk, like, was it just excruciating pain or she just like her muscles weren't working or what did that look like? Yeah. So her, um, her muscles were, her kidneys weren't able to filter out, um, a protein that your body makes. And so it was getting to be like really high levels and it developed into something called myositis. And then that got so severe, it turned into something called rhabdomyolysis, which causes kidney failure. Um, and so we just had all of these diagnoses that were, you know, rare and we didn't know what was going on and doctors couldn't really put all the pieces together, but, um, they said that their immune systems weren't working appropriately. They weren't working the way that they're designed to work. Um, and then did that affect, how did that affect her walking? So when her muscle, her muscles were breaking down, so her muscles were wasting away and she just couldn't walk. She couldn't use them. She lost her Mm -hmm. reflexes. Um, luckily they were able to fix that. Um, and that's just like one piece of her immune system that wasn't working. And then, um, Elizabeth, they had all of these symptoms and we couldn't piece it together at that point, but Doctors knew there was something wrong. So they're like, well, let's do all of these tests. Let's do genetic tests. Let's do um, all of these labs, like when they're not feeling well, when they are feeling well. Um, And then Elizabeth had her first seizure. And so like our kids were just having really big symptoms without an answer, Mm -hmm. without treatment, without us knowing what to do, without doctors knowing what to do. And when we finally got to UCSF, um, we have an amazing team, an amazing rheumatology, immunology, neurology, and they started from the beginning. They took every symptom, every flare, and they went through their history and, um, they started to figure things out. They found out that our girls have two parts of their immune system that don't work. We all have an innate immune system, which is genetics. So it's a genetic mutation. And then we have an adaptive immune system, which is adaptive, obviously. So it's, you know, after, after you're born. Um, and both of them are not working. So their genetic condition causes a lot of inflammation which causes um, their diagnosis of relapsing polychondritis, which basically is just their immune system attacking cartilaginous structures in their body, and it's life-threatening and can become fatal. Wow. And then their adaptive immune system has been caused from the dysregulation, and it's it causes antibodies to attack their neuromuscular junctions and that causes myasthenia gravis which again has been life-threatening in elizabeth really quick i just want to circle back because this is such a complex journey for you guys so how old was elizabeth when her symptoms started showing so like i said when we first had elizabeth we thought things were just normal that everybody went through them so the rashes that she had from when she was born, um, the times where she was saying that her knees hurt or her joints hurt, um, or when she like her gums would be 
bleeding or when her lymph nodes would be really big in her body, um, when she would have fevers that wouldn't go away, we didn't understand or not that we didn't understand. We just thought that that was typical for childhood mm-hmm. and pediatricians kept telling us that it's totally normal, um, that all kids do this and then come to find out that's not actually true. It's not normal for kids to be hospitalized all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not normal for, you know, two and three year olds to need labs all the time and for them to be very abnormal. Um, but doctors weren't looking at their whole picture. They were looking at this acute thing and this acute thing and this acute thing, and they weren't putting everything together. Like each visit as a separate visit. Yes. And so, they- so this is with, this is with Charlotte. No, I'm sorry. This is with Elizabeth. And then Charlotte comes and she starts doing portraying the same, the thing. same thing. So again, so now you've got two girls doing the same thing. Did that raise a, a thought in doctors? I, I think for us, it just verified that like, oh, well, maybe this is normal. <laughs> this is normal. Yeah. Um, and it, it wasn't until Charlotte was two when she had um, that fever of 103, 104 for 13 days. And then... The pediatrician, do you remember what that pediatrician said when they did the ultrasound? Was that in Reno or Davis? That was the pediatrician. So when they did the ultrasound and she told us to go get ice cream after they told us that she had an aneurysm. She had had an aneurysm? So that's what the pediatrician had stated. She said that her aorta was dilated and that we needed to go straight to the children's hospital. Um, And I think it was like that moment when everything that was happening in their life, we just knew that there was something wrong. And, but then not having a diagnosis and not having real answers was hard. Yeah. Because you kind of were like, okay, where do we go? Yeah, they, this, it, sometimes you're not being heard and you feel that as a parent, but you're like, no, something's wrong. But the professionals I'm trusting aren't helping me. Where do you go? They ended up giving us a diagnosis of Kawasaki disease, um, which isn't actually what they have. Where, When you guys got to the hospital that you're currently at, which is what hospital? Um, UC San Francisco. And so you get to this hospital and then was there kind of like a light bulb moment ever with them? Did they like, tell us about how they got their diagnosis at this hospital. So their rheumatologist um, had been seeing them for, I think it was a few months. And the very first visit, she told us that she was certain our girls had something called an auto-inflammatory disease. Um, It was unspecified because at that point she didn't know which one. So auto-inflammatory disease is not a well-known diagnosis. Um, And all of them are very rare, but there are a lot of them. So there are, there's caps, traps, there's just so many of them. Um, And so she diagnosed them with unspecified auto-inflammatory disease. And at that time, they you're still under the impression that they have Kawasaki disease. So she, at that point, she said, I don't think what your girls have But is- going into it, that's what you thought. Or you, that was the latest you had been told. That was the latest that we've been and told. And she says, I don't think it's this, but I do think it's this category of 
a, of something of a diagnosis, but we don't, we aren't sure which one. Right. Um, and she said that, you know, we're going to do labs, we're going to do genetic testing, and we're going to see if we can figure out a good treatment plan. And sometimes with these rare auto-inflammatory diseases, um, it remains unspecified. So I, I believe it's 70% of cases that are auto-inflammatory that they know it's a genetic cause. They don't know the genetic mutation that actually causes the disease yet. Um, and then later on in our journey, I want to say maybe within six months, um, we were at an appointment and Elizabeth was, um, had just been in a flare and she asked, her doctor asked me specifically, she says, do Elizabeth's ears always turn red and, and it spares the lobe. So it's just the top part of her ear turns red during these flares. And I said, well, they do, but we only have, you know, 30 minutes to talk with you an appointment. And so we don't discuss everything that happens because that's just not one that is, you know, it, it doesn't really hurt doesn't her. stick out. Yeah. And she said, well, with all of her other symptoms, I think we need to consider a diagnosis of relapsing polychondritis, which it's exceedingly rare in kids. Um, I think it's one in three million overall, but only 5% are pediatric patients. So if you do the math, it's very rare. Mm-hmm. And what it, it's crazy that a, a little symptom like that could have could make a light bulb moment happen for your doctor. Yeah, it's because so many auto-inflammatory diseases have very, very similar presentations with little differentiations. Um, And then we did imaging to look at Elizabeth's airway and her trachea because she's had chronic pain um, where she would lose her voice. She would have um, like inspiratory and expiratory strider. So when she's trying to breathe, you would hear like this noise when she would breathe in and out. Mm. Um, And when we would do x-rays, it would show like a stenosis, which is like a narrowing, kind of like if you were trying to breathe through a straw. Um, And when they did imaging, they saw that she had chronic inflammation around her cricoid, which is also something that you would see in relapsing polychondritis. Um, so it's interesting to me that you, you you just threw out this stat about the rarity of this. Mm-hmm. But you've got two girls. Right. And that's just one part of the diagnosis, right? Yeah. It is just one part of the diagnosis. So you mentioned, and I'm not even going to attempt to say it because every time I do, I can't Hold get on, it right. Grandpa needs something. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was waving. Um, but it's MG. So explain what that means. So myasthenia gravis. So that's her adaptive immune system which is the other part of her immune system. So they both have both of these diagnoses and they kind of run parallel. Mm -hmm. And how do they, or do they interact with each other or cause? Are they both cause? Does one cause the other or how does that work? I can totally talk about the science of this. These are things that I'm good at talking about. Um, So yes, the, their auto-inflammatory disease is genetic. It's caused by genetic mutation. We don't know the mutation yet. Um, they're also in studies at National Institute of Health, um, which the doctors there have been incredibly emotional about our girls and have said that they're heroes in changing 
the lives of so many of their patients because of everything they're learning from our girls. Wow. Um, which nobody wants to be on this journey, but if there can be a silver lining and know that their story and their journey can save someone. So it's amazing work they're doing. It is. And and I can I can tell you more about what they're doing too, but so that part of their disease is is genetic and the part with their myasthenia gravis is um the thought which her doctors at UCSF are actively trying to do research on um is that their immune dysregulation and autoinflammatory disease um, activates their immune system in a way that their body then starts to send out autoreactive antibodies, which are acetylcholine receptor antibodies or ACHR, which causes myasthenia gravis. So Elizabeth is ACHR antibody positive myasthenia gravis, and um, they both have a positive um, repetitive nerve stimulation which the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America has taught us so much about um, like symptoms to diagnosis, to treatment, to support, um, which has been really helpful. And when their inflammatory symptoms get worse, it activates their immune system more, which causes their Myasthenia Gravis to become more active which has been the most difficult thing for Elizabeth because when she's really inflamed or she has like a hyperinflammatory response from her autoinflammatory disease, it's put her myasthenia gravis in a really severe life-threatening place. Um, is it is it kind of like the body is tricking itself? From a how like what it's respond like the uh, Im- the immune system is responding to, is that a safe way to say it? I don't know if it's tricking. It it's like their immune system works too well, and instead of like everybody has inflammation in their body, and then Elizabeth and Charlotte's body um, works on another level. So instead of just putting out like. Like a little map, like if you had a little campfire mm-hmm. um, and it's supposed to put that out, it thinks that it's supposed to put out an entire a forest, forest fire. fire. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, that's what it does. And then when that happens in Elizabeth, it has also caused her myasthenia gravis to become really severe exacerbations and um, impending crisis. And then in July of last year, she went into hypercapnic respiratory failure. Um, and had to spend time in the pediatric ICU. Um, so there's just a lot of scientific things that you just shared with us about and And the words that you're using. I'm like, I don't even know how you know how to pronounce those. (laughs) And they just roll off your, I mean, can you pronounce all these words, dad? Like (laughs) it's very impressed. The medical language baffles me, but you you're, you become an instant expert in it. You when have you, to. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm sure it's it. not instant. You've put in a lot of time yeah. and a lot, a lot of, of research on to get to where you are. And I can tell you that any rare mom, like any mom with a rare kiddo, 
you have to become the expert on their disease mm-hmm. because you have to advocate when you go to an emergency room and they've never heard of the disease before. Mm-hmm. You you have to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have an incredible support system with our local hospitals now and UCSF where like all the big teams understand and know, but they've had to go through training and education to get there. Yeah. Um, like specific to our, our kids. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. M- MG is called a snowflake disease yeah. because it manifests differently in different people. It does. So how does it impact um, Elizabeth and Charlotte's day-to-day lives? Because looking at, I think I mentioned this earlier, looking at them, you would have no, you wouldn't believe that they have these medical complexities going on right. underneath the skin. Like they just, I mean, the way that we're seeing them today, I'm sure there are days that are. it's not like that. What, how does it impact the day-to-day life and what does it look like when, when it presents? Yeah, so super thankful for all of the medications and infusions because it does give our kids a resemblance of a normal childhood on days that they're really well. Um, but even throughout today, like you're seeing her run down the hallways this morning and laugh and play and um, being able to even do something as simple as opening a water bottle. Later this evening, um, it might not look like that. So she might have more difficulty getting down onto the ground or getting up from the ground or having to ask help to open up the water bottle. Um, and that's just like on a, on a regular day where she's doing really well. And then on a more difficult day for Elizabeth, she needs help sitting up in bed because she doesn't have the strength to do it or she doesn't have the strength to even hold up her neck and it just falls in front of her. Um, sometimes even the ability to swallow or eat like at the end of the day, her neuromuscular junctions, um, aren't working the way that they're supposed to. And she can barely chew her dinner. Um, and these are all things that not everybody sees in our kids. Um, especially when Elizabeth is really bad because she's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like other things that are hard are like sporting sports teams that kids get to go play and play on the soccer field and have their hair blowing in the wind. It's not something that Elizabeth could necessarily make a commitment to because the disease causes so much fatigable weakness, mm. but it is something that I'm optimistic one day she will be able to do. Dustin, how does this impact your family from a non-medical side? You've got all the complexities and the treatments, um, hospital stays, these things that you have to react to. But on the day-to-day, especially maybe for you as mom and dad, how does that impact your emotional, mental, um, relational, all those different things? What kind of impact does that play for you guys? I think you're always aware of what's going on in their body. You want them to be as healthy as they can be. So you're not in a spot where she needs to be in the hospital for a week. So you're mindful of everything that they're doing, everything that they're ingesting, everything that's around them to make them as healthy as they can be while they're outside the hospital. And Sometimes that's a lot. Sometimes it's disappointing for them because they don't get to do certain things 
that other kids get to do. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure that's challenging, right, for you as a dad yeah. because yeah. You, you also want, to, want them to be yeah. able to do those things. Yeah, you do. You want to see them enjoy themselves and be able yeah. to do things with other kids, and sometimes they just can't do that. Yeah. So. In what ways have you um, learned to adapt? lifestyle as much as possible to give them as much opportunity as as you feel they're safe or ready for i try to gauge how they're how they're feeling how weak or if they are weak um what kind of activities we're doing that day if if they're feeling good we can go outside and we can play basketball or go in the gym but if they're not then it could be Hey, I'm going to hang out with you on the couch today and spend some time with you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we get a coloring book, something that doesn't involve too much effort in the physical capacity. Yeah. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit, if that's okay, uh, and and get back into a little bit of personality. So um, you mentioned that Elizabeth especially is wise beyond her years, that she's just got all this wisdom. And... Um, and that she has, uh, I think you referenced on a conversation earlier about um, a, a comment she made about having strength. Do you remember saying something about her, her quote? Could you share that with us? Absolutely. So Elizabeth, oh gosh, she just sometimes says the most beautiful things. But when she was talking about strength, she told me that she's so strong because she's gone through so many difficult things. And that makes her strong. And she she said things like it's okay that she has to deal with this because she knows that her dealing with it means another kid doesn't have to and i just love how she can turn something so positive and it makes me have different perspectives on things yeah and the resiliency of kids my goodness they are they're able to adapt in ways that I think takes a lot more for a parent to be able to do. In what ways would you say her perspective has changed your perspective or given you strength? In so many ways. But I think that one of the biggest things is she has made me know, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt that everything's going to be okay, that she, <laughs> there was one time I think she was, four or five and she said it's okay I'm just gonna kick this inflammation's butt (laughs) and I don't know why that stuck with me but I laugh every time I think about it in my head or when she's fighting hard in the hospital it'll like pop into my head and I will giggle and then just be okay and know that she's gonna be okay and and that's part of it is being optimistic and believing that it's going to be okay. There's a lot of fight in those two girls. Mm -hmm. So much fight. Um, And I wish they didn't have to fight so hard. But they're fighting together. They're fighting together. And that's a beautiful thing too. Dustin, what what have these girls taught you as dad? That's a big one. Perseverance and strength they they've gone through things where you didn't know 
if it was going to turn out. And it's, uh, everybody feels that. It's not just, you know, they're going through it, but everybody that cares about them feels that. And uh, it affects them. So it's strength for sure. Yeah. And I know that shifting gears just a little bit, when you guys were younger and you were newly married, I'm sure that you had an idea of your journey ahead or you had plans. And these plans are probably not what you thought your journey would look like. So how have you two together as a couple adapted to this journey? So there's a really good story it's called welcome to ireland oh i i know exactly what you're talking about i don't think that that could explain it any better you have all these hopes and dreams and thoughts just like it explains like you're gonna go on a vacation to italy um our kids are gonna be on all the baseball teams and soccer teams and dad will be coach and then things don't work out like that. But also what you get from this journey and seeing them and being their mom and being their parent and loving them. It's so much more. And it's so beautiful. And it's so hard. When people ask me this question, because it's been a question that's asked before, I don't feel like I've had to let go of anything. I don't feel like I've had to let go of dad being the baseball coach or soccer coach because they're not on the team. I just feel like we have gained so much and so much beauty in being able to live in the moment and just cherish all of the smiles and all of the laughs and all of the love that we have. (laughs) It's almost just like there's no more expectation. It's just they are perfect and beautiful and they are going to do everything that they dream of doing in their life. So sorry. Oh, no. Sums it up beautifully. It's, um, it's interesting how there can be these parallels of really hard and really beautiful at the same time. Uh, we've heard a lot of families talk about joy and grief kind of running as parallels, like grieving the things that you thought or hoped or dreamed for your child, but also seeing a completely different side of that where you see maybe characteristics of their personality and their humanity become a lot stronger, a lot earlier in life, because like Elizabeth said, she's learned to face challenging things. Like she probably couldn't say that at nine if everything was quote normal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's interesting to see how there can be these parallels that, doesn't make um obviously it doesn't make the journey easier but i would assume it helps with the perspective of seeing (coughs) like where where your daughters are going Mm -hmm. from a holistic big picture because of how you're seeing their personalities shine through and the fight that's already there and that can you can say with confidence absolutely i know these they'll face whatever because i've already seen them do it at six and nine so um, yeah, you don't need to apologize. That was awesome. <laughs> um, what we, we touched on advocacy a little bit. Um, I, I want to talk about your support network. Um, how have you made, cause families, families don't get 
through things like this without some level of support. And so that looks a little bit different for everybody. What does, how would you summarize your support network and how they show up and help you and, and help you in this journey? Either one of you can jump in. Our, our support network isn't, they're not just people that are here physically, which we do have people here physically, like my mom and dad or Mimi and pa. Um, they always show up for us. They help, you know, with Charlotte when Elizabeth is in the hospital because Elizabeth is hospitalized every 28 days for a week. Um, which is a lot. And then she has hospitalizations in between those hospitalizations that last for weeks and weeks. Um, and are those, is that for like an infusion or a specific type of treatment? So she has to, um, have an IV treatment called IV immunoglobulin or IVIG. And that's scheduled every 28 days. And that is to keep her myasthenia gravis, um, better controlled. And what that medication does is, it kind of tricks your immune system so it doesn't allow the antibodies that she has to attack her neuromuscular junctions. Um, but then she, even with all of the treatments that she's on, she still has severe exacerbations, which will cause more hospitalizations. Um, and during those times, my parents do always show up, you know, when he's busy, you know, with, with Charlotte and doing homework and all those things, my mom will make casseroles and bring them over or, um, she'll take Charlotte for a day. Uh, or if, you know, Dustin and Charlotte are coming down to visit, my parents will, you know, feed the goats and get them water and just help with, you know, little, little life things. Um, but our support system is, is bigger than just like the people that are physically here. Um, we have support from different people all over the country, uh, maybe even the world, where even if it's just uh, a prayer chain or moms that I've met that are on a similar journey with their kids um, or the doctors that are at National Institute of Health, one of them we've become really close with and they just always show up and Go ahead. I, I saw the girls were showing me the board of cards yeah. of people. And I asked, like, who are these cards from? And some of them, she said, we don't really know them, but they have, they send us these cards. Yes. So, so many people like anonymously will um, send the girls boxes of craft stuff or books or um, candy <laughs> Um, cards just to show them that they're supported and they're loved and that people are thinking about them. Um, some of them are friends of my mom or friends of a friend, um, or they heard about our girl's story and wanted to follow their journey. Um, because when you hear a story like our girls, it, it can impact you on so many different levels. It doesn't have to be the same disease that they have, but so many people love people fighting something rare or hard and um, there can just be so many positive things from that. Yeah. Well, I want to wrap up by asking what you're most proud of in your daughters. Oh gosh, that is a hard one. Um, Cause there are, are so many things that I'm proud of. Well, don't take them all because Dustin has the same question. So <laughs> he's got a big smile on his face too. He might know the answer already. I'm proud that they both show up as themselves. 
And that looks different in both of them. And they, and what that means to me, showing up as yourself, is that no matter what, they're going to be who they are. They're going to fight one day. They're going to play hard the next day. They're going to love. They're going to cuddle. They're going to be the best friend. They're going to be just the best little human that they can be. And I don't think you can be more proud of than that. Yeah. Well, they both have different personalities for sure. So they, those are separate, but they're both unbelievably brave for what they go through. Um, there's some hard stuff that they have to do that they're scared of, that they don't know what's going to happen. They, uh, and then the doctors and family, they all say, Hey, you know, listen to the doctors and they'll get you to where you need to be. And, you know, watching them getting multiple IVs and, blowouts and things that go wrong and they're still right there doing doing everything that they can to get better and it's tough it is so tough and it, like to hear you talk about it, it you can't even put it into words I mean I think about my daughter having to go through that and you literally can't fathom it and you guys have two girls that go through it and they're doing amazing and they're strong. They're so strong for a nine and a six-year-old. I mean, the the thought of IVs and blowouts, like you just said, I don't know a lot of kids that can be strong like that. Dustin, what would you say to a dad who is having a child go through something similar for the first time, uh, especially speaking to the fear of what their child's going through? How do you... Um, while also, I would assume, dealing with your own fear. How do you address that with your kids? Addressing it with the girls. I think it was understood by them that there was something wrong and that they had to have treatment for the rest of their life. That part is tough, but the the tough part is not knowing the next thing that's going to happen and what, when it's going to happen. So you just have to, at some point for myself, it was, there was a, there was a part where I was really down and I had to switch that to be strong for them and give them an example and I think that that helped them through their journey but they um apologize no you're good no. what's what's the question well just you you nailed I think you yeah. you covered it you I, show I'm, up for him. yeah I, yes. I'm curious um you talk about that switch from being down to kind of trying to switch flip that um I'm assuming that doesn't come naturally or easy no so what did you have any tools or what what has helped you and I, I'm sure it's a recurring thing that you it probably is a fluid thing that some days are 
more down than others because we're human. But are there tools or resources that you've found that have helped you be more on the other side than the downside? That part of it is tough for me personally. Um, I don't reach out. I'm not. I lean on Stephanie more than anybody. I, I won't. What I see is when he he was really down and he just spent more time with them doing more things when they're well. And he just takes advantage of all of those moments more than anybody, more than me. I mean, he grabs onto those moments because it's not like that every day. And to see them at the table just laughing and doing Lego and just being is just, it's great. Um, another thing that he does, back to your question about what he, what what would he tell another dad? What I see from a mom perspective is he's so protective. And when Charlotte was really little, like two or three getting, you know, some of her first IVs, she didn't want to get them. She would yell and scream and say, no, that's a poke. Go away from me. And he would sit there and hold her hand and be like, you're going to wait, like talking to the nurse and we're going to talk to Charlotte and we're going to get her through this. You're not just going to jab that needle in her arm. We're going to talk about it. And he, there's a video I have and he had them come do an ultrasound and let her do it and show them. So she was comfortable. And I think that that moment for Charlotte was so powerful because by Dustin doing that, it allowed Charlotte to feel that she, something wasn't just being done to her, that she had a voice and at, a protector. A young, at a young age. And so that's just, that's something that I see from a mom perspective that I don't even know that he knows that he does. Um, Coming out of a, a low spot, you have to come to terms to what reality is. And once you have done that, you can move on. Oh, that's it. And then I have one more thing to say about what what's the most, one of the things I'm most proud of. For Elizabeth and Charlotte telling their story. And the reason why I'm so proud of that is because when they bring awareness to rare disease and their disease, they, Elizabeth's story has saved a life. Like there is a boy in Minnesota and her story has saved his life. And just knowing that awareness brings research and awareness brings the ability for other doctors to think outside the box and think about their more rare things um, it's just super powerful, and I'm so proud of them to be brave enough and strong enough to tell their story. At Go Shout Love, we do amazing things for amazing families with kids on rare medical journeys. Each month, we shout love for families through the sale of creative apparel inspired by the kids. This month's Stronger Together design is inspired by Elizabeth and Charlotte, two heroic and strong sisters who share a medical diagnosis along with the love of Legos. Every purchase in March will help with the cost of medical infusions not covered by insurance, 
and research funding for pediatric myasthenia gravis. Visit our website at goshout.love to support Elizabeth and Charlotte through the purchase of a t-shirt, hat, sweatshirt, hoodie, or other items.